Hi, I'm Jerry, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Jerry. By the grace of God, and because this program works, I've been sober since January the 1st of 1973, for which I'm very grateful. As has been pointed out, I'm a number of things. I am a recovering lawyer. I have not given legal advice, read a law book, sent a bill to anybody in three years. I'm on my way. I'm also the adult spouse of an alumni. Some of you heard her this afternoon. You don't really know what it's like. Some of you may, but it's... I get kind of choked up when I have to talk about this. I was sitting in my house one night, all alone, except for my dog. And I held my dog in my lap and had my glass of whiskey, and I drank my whiskey and petted my dog and fought. And it occurred to me that this dog was the only thing that loved me. My wife came in from one of those meetings, and and I said, you know, Billy, I said, I've been thinking. This dog is the only thing that loves me. (laughs) It's not right. Everybody ought to have at least two things that love And she looked at me with those steely Alanon eyes <laughs> and said, I'm going to call my sponsor. <laughs> and she did. And she came back and she said, my sponsor says you're right. We're going to buy you another dog. Since that time, my life has continued to improve. We now have three dogs. I want to thank the uh, committee for having me here, for our wonderful host, who, Bernie and his wife, who took us, picked steps and carried us around and has fed us beyond belief, and uh, the wonderful baskets that were in our room. Uh, We've been royally treated. You guys really know how to do a conference. You really do. And we ought to give you and all the people who have anything to do with this now and in the past a big round of applause. It is an honor to be in your country, and it's certainly an honor to be allowed to speak to you tonight about the most important thing in my life. And that's the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I relate very much to you. Uh, we went to the Millennium Express and we saw a little show about your history, Manitoba, Winnipeg. And I couldn't help but admire the pioneer spirit that I saw in that presentation. It's a lot like the pioneer spirit that I grew up in. My dad, uh, my my grandfather was a homesteader in eastern New Mexico and later moved a little over into Texas and 
And so I grew up in that kind of pioneer atmosphere. The Spirit is a wonderful thing. Spirit moves people. Spirit changes the way the world looks. And Spirit is what we do in Alcoholics Anonymous. We have a spiritual program. Spiritual in nature, it's called. And it is very, very powerful. We must never forget that each one of us is as much a miracle as was Bill or Bob. We have recovered or are recovering from a hopeless condition, seemingly hopeless condition of mind and body. And that isn't too shabby, folks. And that's happened to millions of people. And it's happened without doctors, sanitariums, you know, jitter joints. It's happened because of a spiritual program, a way to engage ourselves with a power greater than ourselves. You know, I, I believe that we are complete as we sit here. We got everything we need, but we have to stop doing certain things, and we have to start living in a certain way and relating to that spirit before we can begin to realize the potential which is really ours. And God needs every one of us, and the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and Al and I needs all of us. I uh, listened to the reading tonight and talked about old ideas. Did you have any old ideas? I had some old ideas. Mine damn near killed me. Because I thought they were reality. I thought they were truth. Some of them grew out of that pioneer atmosphere I grew up in. Self-reliance. Self-sufficiency. Self-help. Now, Lord loves them that helps themselves. You can do anything you have to do. Somebody's got to do it. Big sense of responsibility. And I grew up with those things and I knew, I knew what I wanted in a general way. I wanted to be important to you. I wanted your attention. I wanted your acceptance. Couldn't stand your rejection. I did not want to be ignored. And I knew what I had to do to get that. I had to be a man. And when I used the word man, it wasn't anything casual about the word. I had my dad to get sort of my my uh, mentor and my example. And he was a tough old brother. He'd grown up out there on the on the plains of West Texas and uh, he uh, he never he didn't ask any quarter of anybody. He would he'd been in some pretty good fights. And he was a hard worker and he knew he was responsible and all those things and he had a charisma that just boggled my mind. And as a little boy, I remember once I was watching him work on a plow, and he had a chisel and a hammer, and he was trying to cut a bolt head off. And he was just wailing the bejeebies out of that chisel. And all at once, he hit it a little crooked. And it flew out of his hand, and he hit his hand, and blood flew. And he got up and cussed. It's okay for men to cuss. And he shook his hand a little bit, and he walked over, and he picked up that chisel again, and he grabbed the hammer. And just before he started again, I said, Dad... Did that hurt? <laughs> and he leveled that gaze at me and said, Hell no. <laughs> and went right back to whaling the BGBs out of it. Well, I'm a little kid, and a few days later I'm practicing being a man. I'm not a man yet. They tell me I'm going to grow up to be a man. So I'm practicing, and i got my little chisel and my little hammer, and I'm out there beating on the plow. 
Same thing happened to me. I hit my hand. Guess what? Hurt like hell. <laughs> Hurt like hell, and I was afraid to hit the hammer, pick it up the hammer and hit it again. I cried. And that was another unmanly thing that you shouldn't do. So I flunked being a man on three counts in one little incident. And I kept comparing myself to what I thought my dad was, other men were, and I knew I was not measuring up. So when you're not measuring up and you know you need to, what do you do? Well, I'll tell you what you do. You fake it. You play like you're not afraid. You begin to live your life as if. And that's what I did. I knew I needed to be a winner. I thought I did. Didn't know I took a fourth step that I didn't really want care whether I won or not. What I didn't want to be was thought of as a loser. Couldn't tolerate that idea at all. I, uh, I thought I needed things. Butch talked something about that. Well, I thought you were what you did. My second question after I met somebody was, what did you do? And with that, I evaluated what they were. The other thing I was always interested in is, what do you have? And you need certain things. And I set out in my life to get those things. And I had pretty good luck. I rounded up some stuff. Uh, my problem was that it was never the right stuff. I either wanted a little more of it, a little better quality, or a little different kind. And I chased more, better, and different for a long, long time with no satisfaction in my life. I went off to college. Didn't drink before I went to college. My dad had an eighth grade education. My mother, I think, went to the ninth grade. I was the first kid on our side of the family to go to college. Always knew I was going. Didn't know what I was going to do when I got there. Had not a clue. But I went to college, and I played basketball and sports in, in high school, and I was smart enough to know that I wasn't going to be a football player in college. But I thought I'd play basketball. So I went out for the basketball team. And I wasn't doing too bad. They were a lot bigger than anybody I'd ever seen in my life. I didn't know God made men as tall and as big as those old boys were. And I gave up some things like trying to shoot crip shots, because they just stuffed it down my throat every time I tried to do that. And they worked the BGBs out of me, and I was in school, and they, I didn't know, they were teaching me things I didn't know, didn't think was important. I was, didn't know how to dress. I didn't know which fork to use. Girls don't like freshman boys at all, and that was a great disappointment to me. Uh, and I ran across a bunch of guys that just came back from World War II on the GI Bill. And they didn't give a damn whether school kept or not. They were not impressed by basketball players. They had fraternity parties and drank beer. And they invited me to go to one of those. And my life was solved. I very shortly quit the basketball team. I gave up going to class, except as it was absolutely necessary. Uh, my wife, now wife, was a friend of mine. She was very handy. She, I sold my books always just after I bought them. See, I could write a check for those books and Dad wouldn't question the check to the bookstore. So I'd just sell the books the next day and buy beer with it. And I wasn't going to read them anyway, so there was no reason to carry the darn things around. 
And I'd find people like Billy, and she'd let me read her notes, and I was a fairly quick study, and I could pass. And that was, you know, good enough for me. I wasn't trying to be a road scholar or anything like that. I was just running and playing. I had found irresponsibility. I was a very responsible guy, and I, when I was drinking, I didn't want you to think I was trying to be responsible. I wanted it clear that I didn't care whether I was on the honor roll or not. I wasn't trying to make the honor roll. I was having fun. I was drinking beer and driving fast. And I loved it. I just, it was a great relief to me to get to that stage in my life where I didn't feel like so so responsible. I was about 10 years old when World War II came along and my dad contracted rheumatoid arthritis about the same time and we had about a thousand acre farm that we were farming and, and we couldn't get any help. And so I grew up, and 10 years on, I was the guy that drove the tractor on that farm. And I did that till I was out of college. And uh, I didn't feel like I was mistreated for that. That's just what I had to do and what all my buddies seemed to be having to do. But I had a great deal of responsibility put on me, and it felt good to, to let it go. So I would be irresponsible during the school year, responsible during the summers when I had to do the work on the farm, and moved on with my life. And I just loved to drink I really liked what alcohol did to me. I liked the way it made me feel. I could get excited about planning a drunk a week from tonight. Man, we're going to we're going to buy cooler money and buy a bunch of booze. I don't know or care what kind. We're just going to buy some booze and we're going to put some gasoline in a car. And we're going to get in the car with the booze and take off, and there is no telling where we'll be the next morning. And there wasn't. The most common question was, where are we? (laughs) Then somebody would want to know, what did we do? And nobody had a complete answer to any one of those things. We'd have to piece together information and ask questions to find out what happened. And I was the guy who always said, why don't we do this again? <laughs> and I wasn't ever going to give that up. I liked drinking. I liked where you drank. I liked what you drank. I liked who you drank with, what you did when you drank. I liked it all. I didn't care a lot for hangovers, but that was a small price to play for all the rest of it. So I set off in my life. Billy told you today I majored in basket weaving. Uh, I don't think I ever completed a basket, but I think that was my major. Uh, I changed majors several times, and uh, Sherry's talking about how, how long she went to school. I never intended to graduate. They came around one day and told me I had done it all, and I had to go now. And I, I don't know how that slipped up on me. I, I, I certainly wouldn't have done it on purpose because they brought a new crop of girls in every year and it was just a marvelous place to be. So I got out of there and I, I went to the Navy and I got a little, little older and a little smarter and I got married to Billy and we had a son. Uh, finished up my tour in the Navy and went to law school. My wife thought, she said today that we weren't going to have alcohol in our home. I don't know where she got that idea. <laughs> Certainly I never intimated that I was not going to have alcohol in my home or that I was going to stop drinking. Now, that had been one of those kind of deals where she was talking and said, I assume we won't drink anymore. And I might not have answered that, but I never told her. 
Anyway, we went to law school, and I was hungry. I, uh, I didn't have a job. I didn't have a skill that would support those people. And that old sense of responsibility kicked back in, and I had to, I had to, to do well in law school. And I worked hard at it, and I got a good job out of law school, and I went to work at a law firm, and then I had to decide on some sort of a specialty after a little while. And, you know, I was drawn to the courtroom because you can tell whether you won or lost a lawsuit. You can't tell whether you won or lost a contract or a will or a deed or any of those things. And it was boring. But you go down to the courthouse and you knew you were playing and there was a guy on the other side just trying to come to try to kill you. And uh, it was uh, okay. I liked the competitive nature. I was competitive. And I needed to be competitive because I needed not to lose. I was, you know, some people, some people are afraid to compete because of their low self-esteem. I needed to compete. I needed you not to think I was afraid of anything. Because I'm not afraid to try your lawsuit. I'm not afraid to do whatever it takes. And so life began. I continued to drink more and more all the time. Uh, I quit going to bars because Billy objected to that. And besides, I might get caught with a DWI, and that wouldn't look good to my law firm. So I took my, I took my addiction home. And somewhere there, I became an alcoholic. Maybe I was from the beginning, I'm not sure. I, uh, I didn't know what an alcoholic was till I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. And when I read the book and found out what it was, I was really disappointed. <laughs> they said, and I think we forget, that alcoholism is a condition of the body and the mind. That you and I are different from our fellows. That sort of made me think I might be sort of a second-class body that was floating around this world that couldn't handle alcohol, and I didn't like that at all. I was pretty well convinced I couldn't handle it, but I, I didn't like the, the, the connotation of having a, that physical and, and mental problem. And Billy, of course, Billy tried to help me a lot along this way. She. She did some very imprudent things. Uh, she did things without consulting me. She went to a thing called Alamo without ever mentioning to me that she wanted to go, told me what it was, and didn't tell me she'd been going. Until one night I was talking to my daughter, asking her where her mother was. And she said, I don't know, Daddy. She may have gone to one of those meetings. And I said, what what kind of a meeting is that? And she said, I don't know, Daddy. It's a family meeting. Well, at that point in our marriage, we were discussing the dissolution of our family. Uh, we had given ourselves another six months. And it occurred to me that if my wife was going to meetings discussing family 
things under that, those circumstances, probably I needed a representative at those meetings. <laughs> Certainly I needed to know what she was doing there. So when she came in, I began to ask a few simple questions about this. Now I'm a trial lawyer. And I want to tell you, my wife was the most difficult witness I have ever questioned. <laughs> if she does not want you to have information, it's virtually impossible to get it. She won't lie to you, but it's like hitting a snake with an ice pick, you know. It really moves around and hard to get hold of. <laughs> you could always tell pretty early in the conversation whether it was going to be one of those times or not. Like this night, I said, where have you been? She said, out. <laughs> out where? To a shopping center. Which one? Preston. What did you do there? Met some friends. Who were they? You wouldn't know them. <laughs> What did you do with your friends? Oh, we just shared our experience, strength, and hope. <laughs> so I realized this is going to be kind of a difficult exercise, and I began to close doors and narrow the field and close doors and narrow the field. Finally, I got the word. I got a word out of her. The word was Al-Anon. Al-Anon. What would be an Al-Anon? Now, we had progressed pretty far in this discussion. Now, and tempers were a little high. And I did not want to appear ignorant. So I made my best guess. And my best guess was that Alanon was probably an aluminum kitchen utensil. <laughs> Maybe she had finally decided to go to work, you know. It wasn't. And she, when she began to tell me about Al-Anon, it was as though the floodgates had opened. Where she'd once been unwilling to talk to me much, my God, it just poured out. It was a wonderful organization. People would pay $500 a seat if they could just find knew what was going on in that room and go there. They were warm. They were loving. They were, anybody could go. And the only requirement for membership was to have a family member or friend who had a problem with alcohol. Ding. I'm the admission ticket to Alamon. There's not another candidate in 3,000 miles besides me. My wife is going to a meeting, a public meeting, where everybody is welcome. And talking about my drinking problem. Calling it alcoholism. And I got sober almost instantly. <laughs> and I sat her down in a chair and got close to her and gazed deeply into her eyes. And said, Billy, this is very serious. And she said, what do you mean? 
I said, Billy, have you noticed that I'm the only one who brings any money to this house? She said, yeah, I'm, I'm doing And I said, do you know that we owe on the house and on the cars and on the furniture and on everything? Yeah. yeah. Do you know that if you don't pay for those things what they do, what do they do? They come and get them. Now, we're, the minute they find out down at that law firm that you've been going to public meetings because you think I'm an alcoholic, I'm out. I'm out of there. And we're not talking now about, you know, children's education. We're talking about bare necessities. We're talking about being naked on the streets of Dallas with our children because you're going to them damn meetings. She said, Jerry, I, I need to go. And I said, Billy, please do not go to any more out meetings. She said, Jerry, I'm, I'm going to go. And then I said something loving like, well, if you go to another one, I'll kill you to sure as hell. <laughs> she kept going and I didn't kill her. But she drove me crazy. Every day I went to work, I waited for the, somebody to knock on my door and say, Jerry, we hear you've been, your wife's been going to some public meetings. Thinks you're an alcoholic. Well, that was very serious in my law firm because we already had two alcoholics. <laughs> and I didn't think they wanted a third. The, the other two they had were powerful men in the firm. They had a lot of clients. They had a lot of seniority. And I just barely had made senior partner and was just, I, you know, I was, not in, I was not able to compete in that league at all. And I couldn't get her out of that league. I worked at it hard. I mean, I begged her, I threatened her, I tried to reason with her, practice logic, which doesn't work on Al-Anon's at all. <laughs> they become very, they, if they get them for six months, they become very, very inflexible about this whole deal. <laughs> One night, I was trying to uh, get her out of Al-Anon, and I was going to pick a fight. I know this is not really... Not too classy, but uh, I pick fights sometimes. And sometimes I do it, and I get the other person that I'm going to have a fight with to admit some things that will help me in my arguments. And I kind of try to ooch up on the, the controversy. So I was in the kitchen, and I put my arm around Billy and smelled what she was cooking on the stove and said, My dinner smells good. How are the kids? How are the dogs? Dogs are fine. Everything seemed to be fine. And I said, Billy, I've been thinking. You think I'm an alcoholic? And she said, I don't know if you are not. <laughs> I thought that's going to be easy. I said, Billy, you've been calling me an alcoholic for years. And she said, yes, but I was wrong. It doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what your father thinks, your mother thinks, the partners in your law firm, me, the children. It doesn't matter what anyone in the world thinks except you. Because you're the only one who can make use of that information. 
And if you don't think you've got a problem with alcohol, you'll never do anything about it. Now this conversation was not going exactly the way I had planned. <laughs> I've already got two pieces of information that I didn't dream were going to come out of her mouth. And then I made a mistake that no good trial lawyer ever makes. I asked a question when I didn't know what the answer was. And I said, well, if I wanted to find out if I was an alcoholic, how would I do it? <laughs> and the jaws of the Al-Anon trap closed just like that. <laughs> she had me. I really wanted to know, but I shouldn't have asked. And she had the damnedest answer you ever heard. She said, well, you could quit drinking, but I don't think you want to do this. I said, you're right. And she said, the other thing you could do, they tell me now, they tell me. They were always telling her things. <laughs> they say you should try some controlled drinking. Another thing I'd never heard of in my life. And I said, what is that? And she said, it's like you decide you're going to take Two drinks a day. No more, no less. Just two drinks every day. And if you can do that for six months without exceeding the two drinks, you are not an alcoholic. I said, you've been trying to get me to quit drinking for years, right? She said, yeah. I said, do I understand you want me to continue drinking for six more months now? <laughs> Logic. And she said, yes, that would be nice. And I was, realized I was dealing with a very demented woman. She was sick. And I, this was not going my way, and I just got the hell out of there. I said, that's the dumbest test I ever heard, and walked off. But I really needed to get her out of Alamont. And I had been thinking about cutting back. Uh, my day consisted of if I could get through lunch or to lunch and had a chance, I could have a couple of a couple of shots at lunch. And then I'd go back and work, and I'd stay as long as I could or until I got through, and then I would go home. And as I told you, I took my disease home, and I would drink about a half a quart of beef eaters gin before dinner. I'd eat a little something. And then I'd switch and drink... A half a fifth of brandy. And I did that every day. And uh, I didn't know anyone else who was drinking like that. I bought my liquor by the case uh, and slipped it in the house. And uh, I uh, always had a bountiful supply. And But I needed to get her out of home. And I needed to cut back a little, so I decided one day... Somebody's going to have to make a sacrifice to save this damn family, and I guess it's going to have to be me. <laughs> and I thought, well, you know, I'll start off this thing, and she'll watch me. She counts my damn drinks. I know she does. And she'll watch me, and she'll see in a very short period of time that I'm handling this thing very, very well. And she will decide that she's running, she is endangering the family now by going to those meetings. And she'll quit and get the hell out of her. 
So I said, I'll take the test. I had to change the test a little bit. <laughs> well, you understand. See, two drinks didn't do me any good, but I had a good-sized glass. <laughs> and I figure if I drink two martinis, which is beef eaters gin, no ice, just beef eaters gin, and then I will switch to dinner. I'll eat dinner. I might even have a cup of coffee after dinner. And then I'll have one big brandy and a little splash of soda. And nobody in the world can fault me for drinking that way. It's reasonable. So I started taking the test. And I learned the first thing about alcoholism with this test. I would sit down and I'd have my first martini. And then I would go mix my second one. And toward the end of the second one, a thought would come to me. Well, that's about all the martinis today. Mm. Mm. <laughs> and then another thought would come, and it was, what are you doing? Are you over 21? Are you a man? Are you going to let a bunch of little old ladies in tennis shoes tell you how to drink whiskey? <laughs> and the answer was, hell no. I'm not going to do that. And I'd go to the bar and I'd drink the bottle. Or I'd go to the bar and I'd think, well, I've had a bad day today. It's been a bad day. Won't be any tests today. No tests today. <laughs> and I would drink the bottle. Or some days I could literally, with careful preparation, forget the damn test. But it always came back to me. Always the next morning, I was reminded. My wife's sponsor told her that she should greet each day with the statement. The moment she awakened, the instant she became conscious, she should say, this is the day the Lord has made. I shall rejoice and be glad in it. Now, when you've had a quart of whiskey the night before, <laughs> and you're awakened to that statement, eyes won't come open or one's been propped open for about half the night and it's got, you've got dry socket, you know, <laughs> thick tongue that you could shave a quarter an inch off of and never hurt a thing. Heart beating in your head, you know. Boom, boom. When that you hear that, and that under those conditions, you know you're not going to rejoice a lot that day, not a lot. And I'd wonder, what's wrong with me? First good question. What's wrong with me? Why can't I decide how much I'm going to drink before I start and drink that amount? Why can't I do that? Why can't I do that? I've got a lot of willpower. I've done a lot of things that took a lot of discipline on my part. Why can't I do that? And every day I would think, well, today, today I will do it. And I'd go back. And I gave the test a pretty good shot. I ran it a year and a half. <laughs> Never passed it one time. Not once. 
At the end of that time, however, I knew some things. I knew what was going to happen to me when I took that first ring. I knew I wasn't going to be able to shut it down. I knew that alcohol had me. I did not have alcohol. And I began to try to figure how I was going to get out of this trap. How was I going to get out of this world? And I didn't see any way in the world I could do it. I talked about going to Mexico and putting on rope sole shoes, but I was out of desperation. You know, I was, I was looking for a way out and I was just trying to think of ways I could last long enough to get my kids educated and then, you know, I was just going to have to let it all go. And it didn't get any better. Life just kept getting worse for me and I watched Billy and she got happier every day. <laughs> Al-Anon was working for her and I was sinking like a rock. And I, uh, I decided uh, on December 31st, 1972, that I was going to uh, bring in the new year right. I needed a new year real bad. And I, I'd worn 1972 completely out. And I needed a new year, and I was all I had to do to bring in that new year was just be marginally functional when it got to be 12 o'clock that night. We were not going to plan anything extravagant. We were planning around Jerry. We did a lot of things planning around Jerry. This night, we were going to have, we we're going to go out to dinner with some friends. But then we we're going to come home. Because when Jerry stays out and has a few drinks, sometimes he's very difficult to get back in the house again. <laughs> so they're going to, they're going to bring me home and we're going to have this nice quiet evening and bring in the new year with our friends. And I'm warned early in the morning when I mix my first drink that Billy tells me, she said, remember, we're going out to dinner this evening. And I know what that means. Watch it, Clyde. Don't screw up today. So I'm watching it. I'm pacing myself. I'm being very careful. And then I was in my green chair and I woke up. And I uh, looked out the window and it was dark. And I looked across the room and Billy was in her chair in a robe, reading a little book. I said, Billy, shouldn't we be getting dressed to go to dinner? She said, oh, Jerry, don't you know what time it is? It was a little after 10. I'd passed out at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. I wasn't mad at anybody that day. I didn't have any pressure on me that day. Billy and I were getting along that day. There was nothing in the world to give me an excuse to get drunk and pass out on that day. I also knew that she had to call our friends and tell them we can't go to dinner. And oh, by the way, you can't come to our house either. And probably, probably being a good Al-Anon, she had told him that Jerry's passed out in his chair. <laughs> she didn't have to tell him because I, I felt all the degradation about, I was sick of me. I was sick of me. I couldn't understand what was going on in me. I'd fought this thing and I'd tried to do what I could to fix this and I just, hell, I just couldn't think of anything to do. And I got up and went to the bar and mixed a big drink. And drank it because I wanted to believe it. I wanted to be out of it again. And did that. And on January the 1st, 1973, I woke up to the sorriest looking world that I've ever seen. 
I had a bad hangover, and I sat on the edge of that bed, and I remembered what had happened the night before, and, oh, I just, you know, no place to run, no place to hide. And I thought to myself, what are you going to do this year? Is this going to be more of this? What could you do to solve this problem? And for the first time in my life, the idea of not drinking at all didn't seem like such a bad idea. And I sat there and thought about that carefully because I knew I needed to tell somebody if I was going to start that way. You know, I'd never told Billy about that test. She didn't know I was even running the test for over a year and a half. It didn't change my drinking at all. She just knew I was drunk every night. And uh, so I walked in the kitchen and I said, Billy, I'm sorry about last night. She was not impressed with that statement. I said, I have decided that I'm going to try to quit drinking. That got her attention. She wheeled around and went over to the bookcase and pulled out. I just happened to have a copy of the book, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, right there. She also had a copy of the little book, 24-hour, the 24-hour day book. And she came hustling over to me and she said, these may be helpful to you. Would you like for me to call someone from Alcoholics Anonymous? And I said, hell no. <laughs> and threw the books against the wall and told her, I said, look, I don't know whether I can do this or not, but it ain't going to be pretty. And I don't know whether I can do it or not, but if I, it's going to get done at all, I'm going to do it. Self-reliance, you know, me and John Wayne. <laughs> uh, she uh, said something loving and al like, you got it, and walked off. Well, I had it. I had my problem. I made a decision. I told somebody I was not going to drink, so by God, I'm not going to drink. And I began to not try, trying to not drink. You know, that's a real trick, not drinking. I began to shimmy and shake very shortly. So my stomach was sending messages to my brain that said, Hey, Clyde, you're forgetting something up here. Send something up. And uh, I, uh, I couldn't, couldn't get comfortable. I was always in the wrong place. If I'm sitting down, I ought to be standing up. If I'm standing up, I ought to be walking. If I'm walking, I ought to be outside. If I'm outside, I ought to be inside laying down. And man, I'm just moving and grooving. I'm quick. I lasted two days. Toward the end of the second day, I couldn't sleep that night. It surprised you, but I was tired and I couldn't sleep. And I sweat a lot. I seem to be perpetually, it's January in Dallas, it wasn't that, maybe not as cold as it is here, but it's cold enough you're not supposed to sweat. And I'm sweating and shaking and, and my, you know, all sorts of interesting things are happening in my body. And, uh, at the end of the second day, I decided, well, I'll do a little sneak reading. Of that, those books you put in there. See what them AA and A's do with this sort of thing. So I waited till she got out of the kitchen and I sneaked in there. I knew she'd leave them laying around in there somewhere. And I'm sorry I didn't read the big book. I just didn't have time. I had to do this quick so she wouldn't catch me. So I picked up the little 24-hour day book, opened it up, and saw there was a date on the top of each page. And with that keen alcoholic mind, I thought, look at January 2nd. So I did. And it said, 
alcohol has ruined your life? And I said, yes, yes, damn right. And it said, this year we're going to give our drinking problem to God and leave it there. I cannot tell you how disappointed I was in what you all had to offer. I got an industrial grade problem when y'all are asking me, offering me Sunday school type stuff. You know. How are you going to find somebody you can't find? I've been looking for God ever since I was a little old bitty kid. I heard the preachers talk about it. My folks took me to church, to Sunday school, and when somewhere along in there, I began to ask questions. And I asked the kind of questions that, for which there's no answer. And the preachers tried to give me answers. Did you ever try to have faith? I've sat down in chairs and decided, well, I'm going to have faith now. Mm. <laughs> Nothing happened. I did what they said I needed to do. I got sprinkled and dumped and saved and resaved. And I'm not knocking anybody that did that because a lot of people have valid, wonderful spiritual experiences that way. It just wouldn't work for me in my consciousness. See, I wanted God to prove himself to me before I made any kind of commitment. Doesn't work that way. It's his game, and you're going to have to bring yourself into alignment with him, not he to bring himself in alignment with you. And I really don't know why I did what I did next. But I threw that little book out in the middle of the table and said, God, if you're here, I'm going to give you the if you take it, I may do some more benefits. Probably as good a prayer as I ever said. I really needed him. I didn't know if God was there. But I was willing to do what I had to do. Nothing happened. I wanted to drink just as bad before that prayer. I mean, after that prayer as I did before. And I, uh, I went to bed that night and I got up the next morning. And something had happened. I knew something that I had never known before. I knew that I'm going to drink today unless I get some help. And I need some help with skin on it. <laughs> and the only place I knew to get that was a place I said I wouldn't go. It was this thing called Alcoholics Anonymous. I couldn't go where she went. She poisoned the well there. She told them all I'm damn right about. <laughs> no telling how far the word had spread. What a, what a crud I was. And the bad part of it was most of it was true. So I called. I looked in the telephone directory. I found Alcoholics Anonymous Central Office. And I called them up. And a lady answered the phone. Sort of an insensitive lady. She didn't... Uh, she didn't seem to appreciate the depth of my problem. And I told her that I was having a little trouble quitting drinking. She asked some questions about, you know, how much I drank and when I drank and all that sort of thing. And she said, well, you need to go to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous every night. I said, that's absolutely impossible. I'm a very busy, important lawyer, and I just don't have time to go to meetings every night. And she said... Well, what have you been doing every night? I said, well, I've been getting drunk. (laughs) 
She said, well, you're going to stop that, so you're going to have some free time, aren't you? <laughs> so then we switched to where I ought to go. And I told her that I needed a very, very discreet, secretive group. I'd like to have it near a country club. Uh, and preferably, I'd like to have college graduates. I knew I was in trouble because she said, we ain't got none of them. <laughs> so we negotiated, and I finally selected a little group. It's called the Town and Country Group. Sounded sort of woodsy. I thought <laughs> I thought they probably all went to meetings in station wagons and you know that kind of thing. And they did. They went once a week, whether they needed it or not. They were uh I met a couple of their members before I went the first time and really wasn't much impressed with. Them. Uh but I went anyway and uh they just had I couldn't believe them really. They had so much sobriety. But I couldn't believe people needed to drink as bad as I did could last as long as they had. Their baby had a year and a half. The next guy had five, and then they got serious, 12, 15, 20. But I went, and it helped some to go to those meetings. And we met every week. And then one night, uh, somebody came. A young man came out of heart a treatment center in South Dakota. His name was David. And David came to the meeting and he uh, he had literature sticking out of every pocket. And he knew more about alcoholics and alcoholism than anybody I had ever heard in my life. And he had six glorious months of sobriety. They'd kept him in that treatment center a long time. Something about his unwillingness to do a four-step. And I listened carefully to him in that meeting. And I watched him, analyzed him. And I recognized that I was dealing with a real alcoholic. We were both still pretty quick. <laughs> and I'd look at him, and he'd look at me. And we knew we were dealing with a real McCoy here. And I followed him outside, and I said, David. What do you think about this AA thing here? He said, oh, oh, you mean this group? He said, this is not for us. He said, this is fine for these people. They're just maintaining some sobriety. He said, we got to get in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous. Because we got to change the way we think. We're going to have to have sponsors. Do the steps. Make coffee, whatever the hell good that did. Uh, told me all these things we we're going to have to do. We need to be in the mainstream of Alcoholics Anonymous. We need to go every night. And when David told me that, I said, where are we going to go? The miracle had happened. The willingness had come through. He told me, well, some of the willingness. He told me that he had heard about a new group that was being formed called the Alpha Group way out in North Dallas. Out of my traffic pattern, I didn't know anybody who lived or worked out that way. And uh, that was necessary for my anonymity, you understand. But I didn't commit totally. I told him I'd look into it. And what I did was case the place, just like I was going to rob it. 
Very careful. First time I drove, it was on the second floor over a, a convenience store. First time I drove by about 55 or 60 miles and just looked at it and I went, oh. I went down and made the block and drove back and parked in front of the convenience store and looked up to check to see whether they had surveillance cameras or lookouts or whatever it was and it was okay. There was nobody up there that I could see. Went inside and got me a Slurpee or a Coke or something and I came back out and checked upstairs again. It was still okay. Got in my car and I noticed there was a driveway around the side of the building. So I drove around. And there it was. Six parking places in the alley. I could climb the fire escape, park in the I could try to park in the alley, climb the fire escape, and go to Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's the way I came. Didn't like you. Could not understand what you were doing. Grown men standing up and saying, My name's Jerry, and everybody say, Hi, Jerry. Uh, it's like some kind of high school fraternity. I thought, my God, they're going to show me the grip next. And uh, They hugged each other all the time. All different kinds of people hugged each other. I didn't want anybody to hug me or touch me. Just leave me alone. They drank oceans of coffee. They told the damnedest stories about themselves you've ever heard in your life. Some guy would be talking about having convulsions or wrecking cars, or going to jail, or stiffing creditors, and everybody just laughed like that. <laughs> the most inappropriate sense of humor I had ever heard in my life. But, like I said, I'm competitive. <laughs> now, I'd done a couple of things that were a little cute, and I decided, well, maybe I'll try. So I took a chance, and I told them something about me. And they laughed. And they put their arms around me and said, Look at here. Jerry's beginning to open up. He's beginning to be who he really is. Which is all he can ever be. And which is good enough. Good enough. There's a part of us we can't screw up. And that's what, when you be yourself and you get to reality, that's what you are. Like I said, I didn't like the idea of alcoholism, and I didn't understand what AA did. I thought there must be some some group in the back room somewhere that was going to tell me some secret or give me a pill or do something, because I still wanted to drink pretty bad. And one night I was thinking about what this thing was like, and a little later on, and I remembered a story about my bulldog. I had a bulldog his name was Patches. And Patches was a brave dog. Patches represents the best I can describe alcoholism and what the program of AA can work on. Patches was a hero. He had whipped a badger. The badger weighed one pound more than he did. <clears throat> we know because after he killed the badger, we weighed them both. Patches was a dog of character. To illustrate his character, he would go up in the field for a week after that every day and pick up that carcass and just shake hell out of it. Just to let that badger know that if there was reincarnation or something like that that might happen, he was there and ready. <laughs> On this particular day, he was a hero. He had no problems. He had no competition. He was loved, well-fed, petted, 
all the good stuff. No problems in our barnyard. And a neighbor's hog, big, ugly, poor hog, came ambling into our yard. And Patches made a bulldog-like decision to get hold of the hog. And he sailed out there and he grabbed hold of that hog and they were squealing and barking. And Dad came running out of the barn to see what in the world was going on. And he was out there kicking dogs and hogs and cussing, trying to get them apart. I saw my dog in trouble and I go sailing in the middle of that thing. Mother comes out of the kitchen and sees her kid going into that hog, dog kicking tail. She's trying to hold me out. Everybody there knows the solution. Patches, turn loose the hog. Turn him loose. And he didn't turn him loose. But he uh, finally came off. And when he came off, the hog hooked him with those tusks. Ripped open his shoulder and neck. And Dad was able to catch him. He carried him over to a water hydrant and ran cold water on him and sent me to the barn to get some pine tar to stop the bleeding. We patched up patches. And things settled out. And we turned patches loose again. And Patches went right back and got hold of that damn hog again. And it was the same deal. They were squealing and kicking and barking and cussing and all stuff going on. Chaos reigned in the barn. Everybody there had a problem. And everybody knew the solution. Hog knew it. We knew it. Everybody knew it. Patches, turn loose the hog. Turn him loose. Let him go. Well, he uh, he came off again. This time, Dad caught him and he recognized that Patches was not himself. I think the psychiatrist among us would say that Patches' emotional nature was in charge of his intellect. (laughs) That means you're crazy as hell. (laughs) And when that happens, you lock people up. So we chain Patches to the water hike. Dad got in the pickup and drove the hog off, get temptation out of sight. I was given the job of being Patch's counselor, I guess. I uh, sat on the ground and scratched his ears and asked him deep and penetrating questions like, what does your family think when you get a hold of hogs? Did you ever have a good day getting a hold of hogs? Have you ever been to a successful hog fight? And in about two hours, I had him cured. He was laying on the ground. His little old dog, you know, his bulldog tongue was sticking out and his little old tail was was wagging. He wasn't straining at the chain anymore. So I went to see my father, the warden, and told him, Patches is okay. Dad said, I think I'll check him out. I've had a little trouble with him today. So he looked him over and he scratched his ears. He checked him and said, I think he's, I think you're right. Patches is okay. So we unchained him. Patches had to go two miles to find that hog the next time. <laughs> now some of you can understand or identify with some member of that little sh- little show, you know. For example, I was the first hogging in West Texas. A little later on, I got to where I could identify with Patches. People told me a lot of people told me, turn us the hog, Jerry. Let it go. It's ruining your life. It's destroying your family. You'd be such a much better man or a husband or a lawyer if you just didn't drink. Just didn't drink. Or just didn't drink the way you did. 
And that seemed like that was the problem. That's why I tried on January 1st to just stop drinking. But you see, that wasn't the real problem for the old boy. The real problem was what sent him out there in the first place. The real thing was what sent him back again and again. Now, Alcoholics Anonymous doesn't have anything to, any way to help us quit getting hold of the hog. What it does is it gives us a way to live where it's not even remotely interesting to have a drink. We don't need a drink. We have to change our lives. We can't do it by ourselves. I can't do it for you. I can't even really help you except by example and telling you what I've done in my life. And that's what began to happen to me in Alcoholics Anonymous. I began to look around and I recognized I was with a group of people who were different than any group I had ever been associated with. They were real they didn't care whether I, what kind of car I drove, whether I had a swimming pool, what kind of house I lived in. They cared only about how I was doing. What step are you working on? Who's your sponsor? What meetings are you going to? How are you feeling? You asked me how I was feeling, how I'd run inventories. My head hurt. Does my feet hurt? Fine. Yeah, fine. <laughs> I had this buddy, David, to call me up every day. One day he'd just tell me about all the bad things in the world that was happening to him. And God, I'd get trying to fix them right away and I was going to sue somebody. Or he said, One day he said, wait, 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 stop. Don't you know what I'm doing? I said, no, what are you doing? He said, I'm sharing feelings with you. I'm telling you, when I have a bad feeling one day, I'll tell you about it. When I have good feelings, I'll tell you about that. You've got to get in touch with your feelings. You've got to find out who you are. Oh. Oh. And that's why we have the steps that we have. I had to, uh, I came to believe looking at the people around Alcoholics Anonymous that something worked here. I saw people get sober. I saw them come in drunk. So out of touch they couldn't make a complete sentence. And I saw those people get sober and miraculously change into interesting intelligent, hard-working, useful people. Something worked here. When I got to the third step, I had to be willing to turn my will and my life over to the care of God, as I understood it. So I had to do something about God. I'd always thought about God being on the cloud somewhere with lightning bolts and a scorecard, and he'd keep score on you and knock you on the can if he, he did the wrong thing with his lightning bolts. And I didn't believe in that God. I still don't. But I had to define God in such a way that I could do these steps. And I chose to define God as whatever it is that's working in Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's still my definition. That's my closest contact to that power that we see working. It worked in my life, and it happens in rooms just like this. You can feel it. Sometimes it's so thick you can cut it with a knife. There's a presence among us that lifts us up and heals us and gives us strength that we didn't have before we had the feeling, before we made contact with the power. And the rest of the steps are designed to enable you and I to make 
conscious contact with that power and use that power. So my third step was a commitment that I'm going to process my life, whatever's going on around me, and my will is what I want through the process of Alcoholics and Homeless Steps. Those I can do. I have that power to take those steps. And they told me, I told them I didn't think they would work, and they told me they didn't care what I thought. I said, I have no faith. And they said, we don't care whether you have any faith or not. We only care if you do what the book Alcoholics Anonymous and the Steps tell you to do. And if you'll do those to the best of your ability, something will happen to you. You will have a personal experience with the power. You will begin to see things happen in your life that you cannot explain any other way. And there's some kind and benevolent and loving power that assists human beings in this world. And so I began. In a little while, I noticed one day that I hadn't wanted to drink for a while. I didn't even remember when I stopped wanting one. Just one day, I didn't notice it. A little later, a, a woman, a friend of mine, came to me, and she had terrible disease. She had cancer of the tongue. And she'd come home to die. And she came by my house to see me. She didn't know I was in the program. And we had a ritual. And she came in. Oh, she'd always say, mix me a drink. And so she came in that night. She said, mix us a drink. And I walked to the bar to mix her a drink. And my head was in her. And they said, what kind of man are you? That you wouldn't have a last drink with one of your friends. What kind of man would not do this? Another, another voice spoke to me. And he said, you don't want to drink. You want to body. You want to block this out. You want to try to chemically alter the reality. So I mixed her a light scotch. And I mixed myself a soda. I didn't drink. Things began to happen to me on a very regular basis. That law firm. I was scared to death of it. It wasn't very long until people began to haul me around and have me make talks at different groups. And God, I'd scope the room to see who was in there that shouldn't be. <laughs> and who shouldn't be is anybody who knew me or knew my law firm and would call them downtown and tell them that they saw one of your lawyers is down there with all them drunks. You want to be thought of as that? And I didn't think they did. Toward the end of my first year, I was I was driving to work one day, and my paranoia took over. Sometimes our character defects are useful. My paranoia took over to me, and I kept wondering, why haven't they come to talk to me? Why haven't they challenged me? Why haven't they told me, ask me what I'm doing? And then the, the bad voice spoke to me. The devil made me do it voice, you know. Said they know. They know. They're waiting until the annual partners meeting and they're going to call you up in front and fire you in front of the whole partnership. And I'm competitive. And I'm combative. And I said, damned if they will. I'll force the issue. I'll, before that meeting takes place, I'll go tell them what I'm doing. And I picked out five of them and I picked out the meanest one first because he ran the firm and if he fired me, hell, I didn't have to tell the rest of them. 
he was not a he was not a warm and fuzzy man. He was brusque. He was reactive. He was directly to the point. Very smart. Very tough guy. And I walked in and I said, uh, Bill, I need to talk to you about something. He said, What is it? I said, uh, Well, well, it is that I'm an alcoholic, and I haven't had a drink for eleven months. And I'm going to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm not telling you this because it's good or bad. I'm telling you this because you need to know it as the managing partner of this law firm. If you see me drinking again sometime, some of our clients are in trouble. And if you ever know anybody that's got this problem, I think I know a way to help them. And I waited for his reaction, which I knew would be instantaneous, and it was. He said, I am delighted. We wondered what in the hell was wrong with you. <laughs> he said, my gosh, when you say you're an alcoholic, that's somebody that's, with your problem can hardly ever say that. When you say you're going to AA, he said, I don't know a lot about that AA, but it's a good thing. It helps a lot of people. And you stay with that. And he said... I'm really happy to hear that. said, you know, we knew something had happened to you. said, I heard you were on the water wagon. But I'm not impressed with people who get on the water wagon. They get off and push from time to time. <laughs> he said, you know, we need you. You have got a great future here. We need your skill. We need your talents. And you've got tremendous potential. He said, you've noticed we're sending you business again, haven't you? I said, yeah, I had noticed. I've got a couple of things across my desk. Yeah. Yeah. And he talked to me about a half hour. And when I walked out of that room, I knew no fear. I could whip King Kong left-handed. <laughs> I did not give a damn whether the other four guys liked what I had to say or not. Because the boss is on my side, and with the boss on my side, I can handle anything they got. And I went and told them they all reacted the same way, except one. And he wouldn't talk to me about it. He wanted to talk about his farm, about a case he's working on, about anything in the world. He was one of the guys that I had been told was not popular. And finally I told him, I said, I just... You're just going to have to listen to this because I've some, got some things i got to tell you. And he said, well, he said, I know that. I'm an alcoholic too. But I'm not drinking now. And I don't think I'm going to drink anymore. And I uh, hope you worked well for you. And I told him if I could help me, ever let me know. And a few months later, I got a telephone call. He had gone off on a deal somewhere and he had screwed it up to you couldn't believe it. He'd gotten drunk, locked himself in a hotel room, had all the papers for closing in there, wouldn't let anybody in. We sent a team of lawyers down there to get him out of that hotel room. And they called me from that Houston, down Houston, and they called me and said, uh, Jerry, uh, we're going to put him on the airplane. He'll get in at 3.05. And when he arrives, he belongs to you. <laughs> you can do anything you want to with him. And I got to, I got to see him go to treatment. 
And his life turned around. He never drank again. He's about 84, 85 years old now. He never had to take another drink. You know, that, I'd never got to do that if I hadn't broken my own hand. I'd never been able to do that if I hadn't broken my own hand. I've been able to work with secretaries and mail clerks and lawyers and lawyers' wives and lawyers' mothers and dads and all kinds of people because I got rid of my own hand. And it's been so rewarding. I used to wonder, what is my purpose in life? I'm floating around in this clod of dirt called earth where people are killing one another and inhuman things are happening to all sorts. Why are we here? What's the purpose of all this? Why am I, why am I here? Well, I know why I'm here. I'm here because I know how to reach alcoholics. I can talk to another drunk. And I can say, you know, you can too. We have been given a great gift to reach those people. We're probably the only ones who can. And it doesn't get done if we don't do it. A lot of things, good things happened to me. I told me my life had changed. People stopped me on the street and said, we don't know what you're doing, but whatever it is, keep on doing it because it's working. People stopped me and said, what happened to you? Well, not much. What are you talking about? Got a little older, a few more gray hairs, a couple of nicks and bruises. No, no, you're not angry anymore. I had some remarkable things happen. I'm going to tell you about two of them. There are two very important nights in my life, two very important events in my life. One is my wife and I went to a, a weekend retreat to try to put our marriage back together. And for me to try to find God, I'm looking for God. To show the depth of my inquiry, I'm willing to go to a Baptist deal to look for God. And I'm a Methodist, and they don't do things quite like we do. We went out there and we had dinner and there were about 20 people, maybe 10 couples. And we're sitting around the floor of this room after it's all over and this guy named Creth Davis, a wonderful young minister. He, uh, he stood up and he said, well, let's get this started right. Let's just go around the room starting right here and tell what God's doing for you in your life. That's a testimonial. Baptist gives testimonials. Methodists don't give testimonials. What you're doing in your spiritual life is a very private thing in the Methodist church. And I'm not going to do that. And I would have got up and left, except I knew Billy wouldn't leave it. She wouldn't leave. She's going to sit right there. And I'm going to be conspicuous, crawling across the floor, trying to get out of that room. <laughs> so I figured, well, you know, somebody, surely somebody will say, I pass. They went around the room. One couldn't do his job with that guy. Another person couldn't drive on Central Expressway. I've been driving Central Expressway drunk or in Cooter Brown, and I don't need John to drive Central <laughs> And they keep, these, these civilians have these little tiny problems. And if they knew in their midst there was a real alcoholic who had been sober for three or four months, I'd go into those meetings, and I, I guess God's been keeping me sober. I've been saying, help me not drink this. In the morning, and thank you tonight. I, I guess that's it. If I, if I told these Baptists that, I'd blow the socks off these Baptists. (laughs) 
they'd probably want to counsel with me after the meeting. <laughs> so I looked at them real carefully. And I thought, you know, I don't know any of these folks. And I'll never see them again. I think I'll just tell them. I didn't hear anything for quite a while because I'm making up a speech in my head. And they keep coming around until they get two people from me. There was a young, pretty young woman right next to me. And a big old, tall, ugly West Texas boy. Next to he was about 6'4", weighed 250 pounds. Had calluses on the back of his hands from where they drug the ground. You know, one of those kind of <laughs> And he got up and began to try to talk. And it was the most unmanly thing I had ever seen. He bawled. He squalled. He blew his nose. He blew bubbles. He did every damn thing he could think of. I couldn't make any sense out of him at all. And I thought, my God, this woman here must be his wife. She must be embarrassed to death. Finally, finally, he sat down. And she got up. And she looked around the room. And she had gray eyes like my mother's. And she had a little smile on her face. And she said, I couldn't do it without God. I couldn't do it without God. He is my strength. He is my salvation. Every day, I remember him. The nicest thing about God is that he's always been here and he will always be here for everyone who wants to find him. My children are two and three years old and they'll, they'll have an opportunity to find him even though I'm not going to be here to help My husband you can see how broken up he is about this whole deal. He'll find someone else to share his life. Because we're not meant to go through life with him. And he's a good man. And he'll make somebody a good husband. And they'll help raise these children. And I'm grateful we got a nice insurance policy. So he won't be bankrupt. Is my life's difference. And I realized I was listening to a young woman who had cancer. And she's talking about dying. And she's talking about dying not ten years from now, but soon. A matter of weeks or months. And I had an identification of her. She had an incurable illness, and I had one. Hers was cancer, mine was alcoholism. I like my solution. Real good. And God talked to me. He didn't know he talked this way, but he gave me a big thought. And the thought was, ain't you got it tough, cowboy? Ain't you got it tough? You've been sitting around sucking your finger, feeling sorry for yourself because you're not going to need to drink any more whiskey. If that young lady had your solution, and the doctor said, I'm going to have to take off both your legs, too, she said, I'll take it. Just like that. It makes peace at night. Don't even know how I got out of that room. The next thing I remember, I'm walking through the trees. And I'm making that old boy look manly because I'm bawling and blowing bubbles. <laughs> and I'm not doing it because I feel sorry for myself. I'm doing it because I'm grateful. I didn't deserve this solution. I did not. The last time I ever felt sorry for myself was that night before she talked. And guess what? I don't feel sorry for you either. 
We've got a good deal. We've got a way to change our lives. We've got a way to adjust our thinking and our, our lives so that we get rid of self-centeredness and we find and see God. And we don't ever get rid of self-centeredness all the way, but we get rid of all, we, we can downplay it. We can get involved in helping other people, giving it away, caring for other folks. And when we do that, we see the world in a totally different way. And I changed that. I don't know whether I still am or not, but when I was about five or six years sober, my mother called me one day and said, I need you to come up to close New Mexico. I'm about to have another surgery. My mother had cancer for many years. She had cancer before I got sober. And they operated on her, and six months later they had a recurrence. We had to go through surgery again, and they asked me to come up there, and I went up there and was not going to drink because my mother... My mother had 75 years of continuous sobriety. She never had a drink. She didn't understand why I needed one either. But she was my my buddy. She wanted me to be there, and I wasn't going to drink on this trip because she didn't like me. She told me I was going to ruin my family and ruin my life if I didn't do something about the drink. So I went up there, and they operated on her, and I didn't take a bottle of whiskey or anything, and they had been in there hardly any time. The old family physician who was observing the surgery came out and walked over to my dad and I. And he said, boys, it ain't no good. It's everything. Found the kidneys and some of the Said she'll be dead in a year. It was like somebody triggered a switch in me. And I just turned around and walked out and got in a car and went to a lecture. And I got some relief. And I hung around there for a day or two while she came out of recovery and I saw her and she knew I was drunk and everybody else did too. I was of no use to any human being. And they sent me home. Well, the young doctor there said chemotherapy may help. So he started chemotherapy. And it worked. She had years of no problem. But on this Fifth anniversary of my or close to my in my fifth year, she called me and told me they found another one and would I come up again. So I went up again. Now but this time the slate's clean for me and my mom. With my dad and I. The first thing I ever did after I made that third step commitment was send them a copy of the big book and tell them this is the way I'm gonna try to live the rest of my life. And Dave's mother read that book to dad. He, his eyes had gone by that time. They thought AA was the best thing since last week. God, they just loved it. They'd go to any kind of meeting that I was at or was going to attend or speak at or whatever. They just loved AA. Every time they passed the collection place, Dad would grab his walk, and I'd have to tell him we're self-supported through our own contribution. He'd say, ain't right, Jerry. Man, I'll be able to give some money to a thing like this. And I'd say, no. We've been carried too long. We need to support us. That day I got to Clovis and I sat down with my mother and it was easy. We were comfortable. No unresolved issues. She said, uh, Jerry, she said, I want you to get the family and bring them in. So I rounded them up and I got them. She said, uh, folks, she said, this is going to be hard. She said, I've been fighting cancer a long time. I'm weak. I'm and I don't know whether I'm going to make this time. I'm going to try it. But I don't know. And she said, this is going to be hard on me too. This is not going to be easy on any of us. She said, while this is going on, lean on Jerry. 
you'll be destroyed. Now once, a bad stomach, she blew a big ulcer and they had to take out most of the stomach before she died. She left two weeks of hell. And I got to watch it every day. And I came to know there comes a time when you're supposed to die. And I told God it was okay. I told my dad I'd done that. He said, I just did the same thing. I said, and she died. Now the miracle is not, is not about the death of my mother. Really. The miracle is it's the same situation I'm experiencing once she's an alcoholic. Practicing alcoholic once as a sober member of alcoholics. The second time, it never crossed my mind, not a second, not once, to take a drink. I had hold of a power that was sufficient into the problems of the day. I led that thing one day at a time, and when I walked out of there and remembered that I hadn't wanted to drink, while that was going on, you know, I had some proof. I had some proof that there was a power, that it worked in my life. I had seen it work in yours, and it worked in mine. And my life has been most rewarding since that time. My children have come back to me. I have six grandkids. My kids were scared of me and made me just stay away from me when I got in the program. Never, never even mentioned that I'd quit drinking. And I finally asked a lady one night, said, why, what should I do about my kids? And she said, tell them that you took it. And why? So I did, and they nodded their heads, okay. My son ultimately came to Alcoholics Anonymous himself. And he came and talked to me about it when he went in. I'm glad I was, a, I was available to him. He knew what would work. My daughter, they never seemed to have a problem with alcohol. She and her mother practice Alamon on a fairly regular basis. And uh, really my marriage is as good as it's ever been. It's getting better all the time. I want to thank the other speakers who shared with us this week. We've had great speakers. And I, you know, whether I've said anything good tonight or not doesn't really make a lot of difference because if you heard these other folks, you got you got a little like me. Enjoyed meeting Bob. Good to see Don again. Hadn't seen him for a long, long time. He was one of the first speakers I heard in my course. You've got a great program going. You've got a great conference. Guard it closely. And I hope that you will go out and find a weapon. Don't wait for them to call you hunt. <laughs> Don't worry about screwing them up. They're already screwed up. <laughs>